Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Good evening to all of you. It is good to see you. It is good to be back here on Wednesday nights. I enjoyed the brief break from Wednesday nights, but then I found myself with too much time on my hands. I found myself eventually just getting bored and sitting at home and reading my Bible and think, boy, that's great. I need to tell someone. So I'm glad to have the opportunity to be back here twice a week. To those of you who are in the room and to those of you who are listening on the internet, this is the first Wednesday of a new year, and it seems appropriate to start this new year by just saying thank you to all of you. GCA somehow has survived all these years, and I have seen churches here in Smyrna rise up and then fade away for various different reasons, and yet... Little GCA still sits here in the middle of Smyrna, and we're still here twice a week, and we still have men's group, and we still have various different gatherings that happen here in the building, and it's all because you all have made the commitment to be here on a Wednesday night or on a Sunday morning, support what we're doing, but also to support each other, to look after each other and pray for one another, and to protect this thing that we have here, which I think personally is a very valuable thing. And so uh, I appreciate that none of you have decided to take it for granted. We are in Proverbs chapter 18. I hope by now you have seen in our study of the book of Proverbs that so much of what we find in Proverbs is very, very practical. We can still relate to it right here, right now, in the day and age in which we live. You're going to see more of that tonight. So far, the big themes that we have seen in the book of Proverbs are really wisdom versus foolishness. Solomon has taken the time to give us the parameters of wisdom. He says that wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. You start there. If you start with a genuine reverence of God then all the other attributes of wisdom can be yours. If you seek after it, if you look after wisdom, and you don't go down the path of the foolish. And he describes what the path of the foolish is, and in fact, he also describes what the attributes are of foolishness and of wisdom. Chapter 18, he's going to be getting into more of those attributes. He's going to tell us more about what it is to be wise and what it is to be foolish, He seems to be leaning more on the what it is to be foolish side in this particular chapter. And you're going to see in very big overview, you're going to see the difference between talking too much and listening. And he's going to say yet again, as we have seen in all 17 previous chapters, Solomon keeps saying, it's not good to be extrovertedly talkative to the point where you're never listening to anybody else because then you're not gaining knowledge. You're not learning from the people around you who have knowledge. You're not acquiring wisdom. Instead, you're just always covering up their wisdom with your babble. And so, again, tonight, he's going to get into the consequences of that kind of over-speaking and under-listening. Now, along the way, he's also going to throw in just some observations about human life. The tendency is to take those kind of observations, because every once in a while, Solomon will just say, this is how things are. He doesn't say that it's good or bad. He just says, this is how it is. This is how life works. The tendency is to want to spiritualize those kind of things. When we see him just make general comments about the way life is, there is a tendency to say, well, now what does this mean spiritually? I think most of the time he's just simply speaking practically. But we're going to see a verse tonight 
that you're going to say, oh, yes, I understand what that means because you've probably always understood it in a spiritual sense. I'm going to try to emphasize the practical sense of it. And then if you want to spiritualize it on your own time, you go ahead and go do that. But we're going to be emphasizing the practicality of what Solomon has said. Chapter 18, verse 1. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. What he's saying here is, when somebody separates themselves so that the only opinion they ever hear is their own, then they're never going to gain any wisdom. If they're not listening to the people who actually have wisdom, if they're not paying attention to the people who have actually taken the time to learn things, if they're not listening to people who have the fear of the Lord and can instruct them in the ways of life, if they're only listening to themselves, and that's what it is to separate themselves from everybody else, well, then they quarrel against genuinely sound wisdom. The word in the Hebrew here, and uh, Steve, our resident Hebrew expert, can tell me if I'm right or wrong. Pardon me? Did you use the word expert? You're as close as we've got. Uh, so I'm going to go with that. A long way from the goal. <laughs> so, in fact, nobody in the room actually can argue with me about this. <laughs> No, actually, that Hebrew term that is translated in the NASB as he quarrels against can also be translated as he mocks. He makes fun of sound wisdom. And that, I think we would all agree, is very typical of very self-centered, <coughs> separated, foolish people who are only interested in their own opinion and their own thoughts when you come to them and bring them genuine wisdom, like let's say you say, hey, this is what the Bible says, they're going to quarrel against it. They're going to stand against it. They're going to mock it. They're going to say that that's not what genuine wisdom is, or they're going to say that it's needless, that it's pointless. I don't need that kind of wisdom. Well, Solomon, being one of the wisest men in antiquity, would certainly know what that was all about, because here he is trying to educate people trying to bring people along in the things of God, I'm sure he faced a whole lot of quarrelsome mockery, as we still do today. Verse 2 then says, A fool, someone who mocks wisdom, someone who separates himself, who's only interested in his own opinions, a fool does not delight in understanding. In understanding the way the world works, in understanding the things of God, in understanding the really important elements of the world, there are people who are just into eat, drink, and be merry, and aren't concerned with the wiser things of the world, who don't care about the things of God. And he's a fool because he does not delight in the wise things. He does not value those things. He doesn't treasure the wisdom of the wise he does not delight in understanding, but he is only interested in revealing his own mind, revealing his own thoughts. A person who talks all the time is essentially saying, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I'm not going to listen to what anybody else thinks. I'm just going to tell you what I think. I'm going to reveal my own mind, my own thoughts. And somebody who acts like that obviously doesn't want to be educated because they just won't listen to anybody who actually knows anything. So verse 3 says, here's the result. When a wicked man comes, when an evil person comes, when a foolish person comes, a corrupt person, when that man comes, contempt also comes and with dishonor comes reproach. There seems to be a succession of thoughts here in Solomon's mind. The words dishonor and reproach could also be translated as shame and disgrace. And so he's saying, when a wicked man joins your company, when a wicked man comes into your sphere of influence, the result is first contempt because wicked men, as we just read, are contemptuous. 
Wicked people just want to hear more of me and less of you. Wicked people aren't interested in having an education in wisdom or the things of God. So when they come along, they bring contempt with them. They hate the things that wise people are trying to elucidate. And as a result, that brings them to shame. That brings them to dishonor. And that brings them to disgrace. And if you happen to be in their sphere, how often now have we seen Solomon say, don't, don't join the company of fools. Don't hang around with fools. Don't answer a fool after his folly. So be separate from the foolish people because the foolish people have separated themselves from the wise people. Therefore, when a wicked person comes your way, when he comes to join your company, you know that he's bringing contempt with him and that's going to result in shame and that's going to result in disgrace. So nothing good comes from hanging out with fools. But if a fool is willing to listen to a wise person, Tremendous goodness results. So you see the contrast that's being developed here in the first part of chapter 18? He's saying fools bring down wise people. Bring them down. Bring in shame. Bring in contempt. Bring in disgrace. But wise people, if the fools would just listen, wise people can lift them up, can educate them, can bring them along in the things of God. So wisdom is its own best reward. Verse 4. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters, and the fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. Now he's constructing a contrast here, so really we have to understand the first half of the verse based on what the last half of the verse says. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters, He contrasts that with a fountain of wisdom is like a bubbling brook. So water rising up, available like a fountain. Versus these words of a man, apparently of a wicked man or of a fool. Those words from his mouth are deep waters. So what does that mean? If you're in the middle of a lake and you happen to drop something valuable... Say your watch falls off and it falls into the middle of the lake. You're not going to go swim for it. That's the deep part. It's gone. It's hard to plumb those depths. If, you, if your watch drops off near the shore where the water is shallow, then you can still get your watch back. You can see it. You can get it back. But there is an area of deep. And what Solomon seems to be getting at here is those are difficult depths. And so what he's saying is, You can't really dig up. You can't really uncover. You can't really resource the words of a fool. A man's mouth is like deep waters. Those words come out and they plummet into the depths and they can't be retrieved. However, by contrast, it's a fountain of wisdom. If somebody is telling you true things, if somebody is telling you intelligent, educated, wise things, if somebody is guiding you in the ways of God, well, then that is, he says, like a bubbling brook. It's just a fountain of water. It's constantly available. So the contrast Solomon has created seems to be between something that is unrecoverable, something that is so deep that you can't get it versus something that's constantly available. So Solomon seems to be saying, wisdom is available, just take it up. Whereas the thoughts of your mind, the words of your mouth are unavailable, unredeemable, lost in the depth. Verse 5. Now remember that Solomon, as king of Israel, is also the judge. That is one of the primary jobs that he does as king of Israel. And so we've seen, as we've been going through the book of Proverbs, plenty of these verses that have to do with legal things, that have to do with judging people appropriately. We're going to see a couple of those kind of verses in this chapter. That's what this verse seems to be about. Verse 5, it's talking, obviously, about wicked judges or people who are not judging appropriately He says to show partiality to wicked people is not good. 
I don't think he would bring that up if it weren't actually happening. Solomon knows what it is to render proper judgment. He knows what it is to render wise judgment. We see examples of that in the Bible, the wisdom of Solomon and the way he meets out judgment. But I think he has also seen that there is wickedness in the way people judge others. And so he points out that if you're showing partiality to those things that are not good, to those things that are not right, to those things that are not godly, (coughs) then that is not good. The NASB adds the word nor. Showing partiality to the wicked is not good, which would mean it is evil. But also to thrust aside the righteous, which means to not give them proper judgment. To thrust aside the righteous in judgment is equally evil. So Solomon is saying that in judgment, in court, in doling out the judgment that a king is supposed to do in a righteous way, you can't show partiality to anybody. He has already told us that you shouldn't be partial to rich people. Now he's saying that you shouldn't be partial to evil people. Genuine, proper, godly judgment would listen to the case, pay attention to the details, and then mete out judgment accordingly. In a moment, you're going to see more of these sort of judgment verses And you're going to see this is the context in which Solomon starts saying, you got to listen. You got to pay attention. If you just have your opinion and you're constantly telling people what your opinion is, you've separated yourself to your own ego, your own desires, you're only interested in revealing your own mind, then you're not going to pay attention. You're not going to listen. And if you don't listen, you can't render good judgment because he's going to say, The first person to speak seems right until he's cross-examined. And then you're going to start finding out what proper judgment would be. So all of this seems to have to do with proper godly judgment. Verse 6 and 7 kind of go together. You'll notice that in verse 6, he mentions a fool's lips and his mouth. In verse 7... He mentions a fool's mouth and his lips. The lips and the mouth are synonymous terminology that all have to do with speech, talking, using your tongue, saying too much, just like we've been seeing all the way through this chapter. There's still this idea that a fool just talks too much. A fool's lips end up bringing strife, contention, argument. Here, let me see if I can make this really, really practical for you. Have you ever said something to anyone where after you said it, you thought, oh, I wish I could take that back? Now, that'd be everybody. We all know what it is to slice somebody up with our words. And then the damage that's done is done. You can't take it back. It's It's permanent. However you've hurt that other person, you've hurt them for good. They may be willing to forgive you, but they're never going to forget that you have the capacity to do that. And that is going to bring about argument. That's going to bring about contention. We've already seen in Solomon's writing that he says when somebody argues against you, the wisest move is to say nothing, to just wait. He doesn't use the term count to ten, but that's essentially what he's saying. Think about what you say before you respond. Don't let your emotions get the best of you. Don't just fire back at them because Solomon says that just leads to more arguing. That just leads to more trouble, to more pain, to more hurt. A fool's mouth, he says, is his ruin. A fool's mouth constantly talking, not thinking about what he's saying, and being willing to hurt other people with his words will ultimately lead to his own ruin. He's going to end up at at the end of his life with no one. No one's going to want to be around him. Nobody's going to ask him for advice. No one's going to pay attention to him. No one's going to trust him because they all know that he's a fool. And how is it that they know that? Because of his mouth. Because of the way he uses his mouth. So a fool's speaking, a fool's lips bring about strife, contention, arguing. And the result is his mouth calls for blows. 
says the NASB, it means he deserves punishment because of the amount of damage that he does to people with his mouth. And the result of a fool who's constantly running his mouth is that eventually he's going to come into some kind of uh, conflict with the law, and the law is going to require that he be lashed or that he come to blows under Solomon's kingdom. Yes? The ESV translates it, his mouth invites a beating. His mouth invites a beating. That's pretty much it. And legally, a fool's mouth, again, we're talking about proper judgment and stuff here. The fool's mouth is going to bring him to the point where a king, where a judge has no other option than to bring the appropriate punishment to him. So a fool's lips bring strife and his mouth calls for a beating, for blows. And a fool's mouth ultimately ruins him. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. Now, we have to talk about that phrase a little bit. You know what a snare is? Snare is a trap. Solomon says that your mouth, your lips, your over-talking, your foolishness, you're full of yourself. You're only concerned about your own ideas and your own opinions, and you're constantly feeling the need to let everybody know what you think of everything so that you're not listening to wisdom when it comes around. He says that becomes a snare for your soul. Now, he might be talking in the eternal sense here. He might be speaking in the spiritual sense that if that's the way you live, if that's the way you act, that ultimately that's not good for your ever-living, never-dying soul. But he also may be talking in a very practical sense because the word soul here can also be used of the person's personality, of his character, of the way people interact with him and what they know about him. So he's saying that if you run your mouth all the time, if you're not paying attention to wisdom, if you're only interested in your own opinions, that becomes a trap for everything else you are. So everything else you are, everything that makes up you, can be ensnared, can be trapped by the silly things you say. So wisdom would be, let's see, how should I put this? Shut up. Wisdom would be, think about your words. Wisdom would be, don't use your words to hurt other people, and don't use your words as a way to make sure that everybody else gets a good heaping helping of you. Instead, use your words to lift people up. Use your words to encourage people. Use your words to bring people along in the wisdom that you find in the knowledge of God. Speaking of words, verse 8 says, The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels. The NASB goes with the word whisperer. What that word is, is gossip. Somebody who tells you some gossip usually a gossip will not broadcast their gossip far and wide. People don't stand up in the front of a room and say, oh, I got something to tell you about Kenneth and Charlie, and I know. No, they're not going to do that. They're going to take you aside and say, hey, you know, I heard something about Kenneth and Charlie, and not everybody knows this, but, well, that's what gossiping is. That's what whispering is, talking about other people. Now, again, Solomon has already told us some of the harm that gossip can do. But even in the New Testament, the concept of gossip comes up time and again to say that we can do so much damage with our tongues and the way we whisper and the way we gossip and the way we talk about other people. Solomon says the words of a gossip, of a whisperer, are like dainty morsels. So now we've identified who the gossiper is the person who whispers, the person who carries some bit of bad information about somebody else. But really, Solomon is talking about the person who accepts the gossip. He's saying, listening to other people's gossip is like a sweet dessert. It's like a dainty morsel. It's like some sugar-coated thing, which those of us who are on keto right now desperately want. It's like It's like somebody comes and they say, you know what I know about Kenneth and Charlie? Okay, now biblically, we're supposed to say, no, and I don't want to know. 
And I don't want to hear, if you're going to talk against my brother, if you're going to talk against my sister, if you're going to talk against a fellow saint of the Lord, I don't want to know it. I don't want to hear it. You ought to walk away, but it's our human nature. That whenever somebody says, you know, I I know something, boy, it's like a dainty morsel. We can't wait to get to it. Yeah, tell me. Oh, what do you know? You know, we need to pray about this. Oh, yes, because then they can spiritualize and make themselves look good as they're gossiping. Yeah, but it's still gossip. Well, what we've learned is that people who are on keto are susceptible. That is true. That's very true. Mm -hmm. By the way, you know, I've made several references tonight now to Kenneth and Charlie. So if you want me to keep my mouth shut, it might not be a good time to make fun of the pastor. (laughs) So then because they're like dainty morsels, when you eat little dessert snacks, when you eat little sugar chocolate snacks, they become part of you. They go down inside you. They go down into your digestive system, and they become part of you. That's what the second half of verse 8 says. When you listen to other people's gossip and you take it on like a dainty morsel, then it goes down into the innermost parts of you. You can't unhear what you've heard. You you could think that Kenneth is the best guy in the world, and I'm going to keep picking on Kenneth and Charlie until they get tired of it. You can think that Kenneth is the best guy in the world, and then all you got to do is hear one little bit of gossip about him, and it can change your whole opinion of him. That gossip gets down into you, and it affects you in how you react to other people because suddenly you go, I didn't know that about him. Well, I guess he's nowhere near the fellow I thought he was, and it affects you. It gets down into you. It changes your countenance and your opinion of him, and it creates dissension. It creates differences and argumentation. So ultimately, as Solomon has already told us, That's foolishness. That's contention. Verse 9, then. I can't help but really enjoy verse 9, this particular proverb, because he's laying up a a contrast again. He also who is slack, lazy in his work, is brother or is just like the one who is destroying. So the picture that he's forming is, If you've got two towers, let's say, next to each other, two structures, two physical structures that are being built, one of them is being built by a guy who's not very committed to his building. He's slack at his work. He's willing to leave out cement. He's willing to make it easy on himself. The tower next to him is a tower that's being broken down, deconstructed. It's being destroyed. He is saying those two towers are exactly the same. Neither of them safe. Neither of them is usable. Neither of them is good. One is actively being destroyed. The other is actively being badly built. So neither of them have any actual value. So he says the one who is slack, who is lazy, who is neglectful in his work, is brother to the one who's busy destroying something. So that is, yet again, another way that Solomon is saying, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Do it as unto the Lord. Do it because you know that this is part of your reputation. This is part of your demonstration of your own wisdom, your own knowledge. So make sure that the work you do, you do really well. Because if you're not doing it well, That's just like you building something that's being deconstructed because you're not building it well. Something that's being demolished is the same kind of work you're doing. Isn't that a clever little phrase? Mm -hmm. I like that phrase. Okay, now the next three verses, 10, 11, and 12, all do seem to go together. The basic concept right at the beginning of verse 10 is that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. I think maybe that's why I decided my previous example would include towers. The name of the Lord, which means everything that God is, the power of God, the authority of God. 
Everything about the Lord, that's the capital L-O-R-D, that's the Yahweh name, that's the revelatory name of God. He himself is a strong tower. In other words, if you're running for cover, if you're running for shelter, if you're looking for a place where you know you're safe, run to God. He becomes your strong tower. But now he's going to talk about some of the other things that people run to and trust in in this lifetime that ultimately aren't worth trusting in. Only, as he's going to demonstrate, only the Lord, only God himself is trustworthy. That's the only place that you can find genuine, lasting comfort. Paul picks up that concept in the New Testament and talks about the peace that passes understanding. Human beings can't comprehend the peace that we have because we trust in God. And if you trust in God, and if you know for a fact that he's for you, so who can be against you, then you have a confidence and a peace and a comfort in this lifetime where nothing can destroy you. Nothing can get to you because the worst that this world can do to you is to kill you and then you go home. You win either way. So trusting in the Lord is like a strong tower. Now again, remember Solomon being king of Israel When he talks about a strong tower, he knows what he's talking about. Usually a tower was one of the highest places along the wall so that from up there you could see the enemy approaching. And the wall was usually high and strong so that you could shoot down at your enemies if they were to attack. But a tower is a place of protection. You're surrounded by rock and stone so that no arrows or anything can kind of get to you. You're up high, so even if they shoot up at you, eventually that arrow is going to arc back down. It's a place of protection. In Solomon's mind, it is the most protected place. So he says, that's what the Lord is like. It's like a strong tower. Nothing can get to you if you're in that tower. And then he says, the righteous run into it, into the name of the Lord, into the authority of God, into the wisdom of God, remembering again that the uh, beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, the reverence of God. The righteous run to the name of the Lord, and they're safe there. That's a very reassuring word, that when you run to God, despite what's happening in your life, you're safe there. I'm sure we have all had the experience, I know I've had the experience over and over again in my life, where everything seemed to be going so badly, so haywire, so upside down, that the only refuge I could find was to say, well, God knows. The sovereign God is in charge, and he's decided to bring this my way, and so he's going to get me through it, just like Paul saying that there is no temptation taken us, but such is common to man, but God We'll provide a way of escape. God is going to get us through the problems that he brings into our life. In fact, in a few minutes, in verse 14, hopefully we'll get to it before the night is over. He says, the spirit of a man, which means the the inner man, what you have confidence in, what you trust in. If you're trusting in God, the spirit of a man can get you through sickness. You might be sick even to the point of death, but the spirit, the inward man, the trust in God, that's going to get you through that. And then by contrast, he says, but a broken spirit, nobody can bear that. If your spirit, if your confidence, if your trust in God is destroyed, well, then the whole rest of your life is going to be destroyed. But if you have confidence in God, if you run to God, if you trust in God, then even sickness can't get to you. Even your enemies can't get to you. Even wickedness can't get to you because you're safe in the strong tower of the righteousness of God. You get the picture? Mm -hmm. Now in verse 11, he's going to say, but a rich man's wealth becomes his strong city. A rich man is one of those people who says, my barns are full, my silos are filled up full, I I have no worries at all, my life is good. Take ease, my soul, eat, drink, be merry. I got no worries, everything is good because I'm rich. And of course, when Jesus used that example, he said, 
you fool. This night your soul is going to be required of you. And what is a man going to give in exchange for his soul? So your riches, if you trust in your riches, if you think that you're going to accumulate enough stuff in this life, enough money in this life so that you're really going to be safe, when you die, you take none of that with you. And you stand before God who is the real judge. And if you didn't take refuge in him, then you're going to end up harshly judged by him. So the riches of this life aren't the safe place. It is only trust in God in the name of the Lord. That's the only place where safety resides. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. And like a high wall in his own imagination, he thinks his money is going to protect him from everything. Okay, let's pick somebody who's really wealthy. Uh, Bill Gates. Second only to Jeff. But let's say Bill Gates, he may think that his money, which gives him power, which gives him influence, which gives him a big voice in this world. Anybody know how old Bill Gates is now? Offhand, does anybody know? He's not a spring chicken. I don't know how old he is. But what we know is he has lived out most of the years he's going to get here on planet Earth. He's going to leave this planet. And you know how much of his wealth he's going to leave behind? All of it. Every single bit of it. When he stands before God, all of that influence he had because of his wealth is gone. He has no influence at all. When he stands before God, all of that wealth and that power that caused everybody to kowtow to him and listen to his ideas and go along with him and treat him well, that's all gone. And if he did not trust in God, if he didn't take refuge in God, that's the source of all the judgment that God is going to mete out. What did you trust in in this lifetime? Did you trust in your wealth? Did you think that that was like a high wall? Remember a moment ago I was describing a tower, and I said the tower is the highest point, but then you've also got a high wall so that you can shoot down on your enemies and they can't climb up that wall so that you can do battle against your enemies. It protects a city, a high wall does. He's saying here that wealthy people think that their wealth is a high wall, that it's protecting them, that it's keeping out all the troubles of this life. But when it comes time for the wealthy man, for the Bill Gates of this world, when it comes time for sickness to get them, sickness is going to jump that wall. Nothing's going to be able to preserve them when it's time to go. So Solomon has said, don't trust your riches. By the way, this is somebody who was the richest man in the Middle East at that moment. But he still understood the wisdom of saying, but I can't trust the money. I can't trust the horses. I can't trust the power, the armies, the authority that I have under me. I can't trust that. It's God and God alone that I have to put all of my confidence in. I have to run to God like a safe tower. Now, rich men, by and large, become egocentric, become full of themselves. The NASB is going to use the word haughty. In order to save, in order to preserve somebody who in this life has had all the money and the power and the authority, at some point they're going to have to be humbled. And as I've said over and over again, if God loves you, he'll humble you. He will knock you off that high horse you're riding. He will bring you off that self-made perch of self-made man, and yes, I'm in control, and everybody loves me, and I have lots of money. And I... If God is in the process of saving you, he's going to take you down a couple pegs. He's going to humble you so that you look to him as your only safe place. And that's what verse 12 says. Before destruction... The heart of a man is haughty. Before he's brought down, he's full of himself. Because that's just human beings. Let's see if I can go through this one more time. What is the most frequently cited sin in the whole Bible? Pride. Pride. Arrogance. Self-made man, full of yourself. That's the most often cited sin in the entire Bible. And... Before your destruction, before you're brought down, before you are humbled, 
You're full of yourself. And God knows that. The primary reason that most people don't run to God is because they don't think they need him. Which is why Jesus would say, well, men, don't seek a physician. They're fine, so they're not going to go look for a doctor. Only people who know that they're sinners, only people who have brought down and been humbled, only people who have been driven into a corner where they have nowhere else to go but God, only those kind of people understand that their own ego, their own self-sufficiency, their own pride accomplishes nothing eternally. Before that kind of destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Now, he may be talking practically here as the king again. He may be saying that when people come in front of me full of themselves and full of haughtiness and full of (coughs) self-sufficiency, and I can do it, don't worry about me, Solomon, I got your back, I'll take care of all this. He may be saying, don't trust those kind of people. I've been in this particular enterprise long enough that I have learned that people will say all kinds of things to your face. People will make all kinds of grand pronouncements. I can't count the number of people who have come through the door here and made great pronouncements about what they're going to do for us or how they're going to stick with us or how we can count on them. But that kind of haughtiness worries me. It always kind of scares me. It makes me step back a little bit. I've had people, in fact, who came through the door who didn't know much about GCA, who within the first two or three weeks they were here said, you know, I'm a teacher. I'm a Bible teacher. I'd really like the opportunity to do some teaching here. And I tell them, well, just wait. Let the people get to know you. Let them build some confidence in you. And then I'll give you the opportunity. But not after two weeks, no. And you know what they do? They go look for another church where somebody will let them stand up and teach because they have that kind of pride, that kind of haughtiness. Someone who comes through the door in humility, who's willing to recognize that they're not the all-important person in the room, that's a person who you can then honor. Solomon speaking as the king is saying, I can make those kind of men leaders. Because they're humble enough to know their own capabilities and incapabilities. But people who are haughty, who are full of themselves, their haughty hearts have to be, the word in the NASB is destruction, but it just means to be torn down. And God will tear you down if your haughtiness, if your pride, if your ego is going to get in the way of your salvation. He will tear you down out of love. Out of consideration for you, he will tear you down. And that is the love of God. Because before that kind of destruction, the heart of a man is full of himself, very haughty. But before you're honored in any way, first you have to be humbled. Humility goes before honor. Okay, so now we're back to talking about speaking and listening, and I think this also is kind of in the context of of a courtroom, of judgment, of listening to people make their case. Verse 13 says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and a shame to him. Now, in the largest sense, Solomon can be saying, that you don't mete out judgment, you don't give your answer before you actually listen. You listen to the affirmative, you listen to the negative, and then you make a sound judgment. You don't just immediately give an answer before you've really heard everything. But this also very practically means and can be connected with verse 2 that says, A fool doesn't delight in understanding. He only delights in revealing his own mind. Somebody who can't wait to tell you what they think. And that is, I would say, the vast majority of human beings. When you're speaking to them, they're usually not listening to you. They're usually developing their own answer in their head. And they can't wait for you to stop talking or even take a breath so that they can get back in there and tell you more of what they think. I think I've mentioned this before, but back when I was 
at ComData in Brentwood all those years ago, I actually taught a class there on what I called active listening. Most of us are quite active in talking, but most of us aren't active in listening. And I talked about listening for key words and key phrases and understanding what somebody else was saying. Through the years, I know I've also said that in formal Greek debate, which is very unlike debate here in America in our modern culture, in formal Greek debate, the first person would make their case and then the person who was debating them was not allowed to state his case until he could state his opponent's case to his opponent's satisfaction. You understand that? The first person would make his argument, and then the person arguing against him was not allowed to make the argument until he could convince the person that he actually understood the argument to begin with. That's what active listening is. Listening to the things people say, and then forming your answer so that your answer actually corresponds with what they were saying. Have you ever heard yourself use the phrase, Usually with a little huff on the beginning. So I'm going to put the little huff on the beginning, and then I'm going to say, have you ever heard yourself go, that's not what I'm saying? Yeah. You get into conversations with people, and you tell them what you're saying. You've used the words that you think best convey what you're saying, and then they argue back at you or interject back at you, and you have to go, no, what were you listening to? That's not even what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm saying. Well, it's because people don't listen. People can't wait to talk. People can't wait to be heard and tell you their opinion. They can't wait to tell you what they think, what their ego has consumed. So the wisdom of Solomon here is that you have to listen. If you just answer without really hearing, he says, That's foolishness. That's folly. And it's a shame to you. Okay, I'll go even further. Have you ever been talking to somebody and you've gotten fed up with saying to them, that's not what I'm saying. And you reach the point where you go, oh, never mind. And you walk away. That's what Solomon's talking about here is where it just becomes a shame to you People can't even talk to you anymore because they know you don't listen. You don't pay attention. And by the way, the furthest extension of not listening is, I don't care. I don't care about you. If you're not listening to somebody who's taking the time to share themselves with you, and you can't wait to think of what you're going to say, and you can't wait to give them more of your own mind and your own thoughts, that's just another way of saying, I don't care about you. And when you're talking to somebody who's really not listening, that's the feeling you get. Wow, you just really don't care about me, do you? You really don't care what I think or what I'm saying. Well, that's what Solomon says here. He who gives an answer before he listens, before he hears it, well, then that's foolishness to him, and it's a shame to him. Now, verse 14, I've already mentioned, it says, The spirit of a man can endure sickness, but a broken spirit, well, who can bear that? I think you already understand it. He's saying that the inner man, the person who is drawing strength from his knowledge of God and the wisdom of God and his sovereignty, that kind of man can bear up under anything. And even if you're sick, even if your body is broken, You can get through it. You can endure because you hang on to the promises of God. But but if that breaks, if you no longer have confidence in God, if your inner man, if your spirit is broken, who can bear that? There's no way you can live under those conditions. So I think the positive version of what Solomon is saying there is run to God, trust in God. He's your strong tower, and you can't get through without him. If you don't have that, if you don't have that inner confidence in God, well, then nothing can help you. But if you do have it, even the worst of sicknesses can't break you. Verse 15, then. 
The mind of the prudent, says the NASB, it just means the mind of somebody with good judgment. Somebody with good judgment acquires knowledge. By the way, how do you acquire knowledge? Listening. Listening. Paying attention. When people who know stuff are talking, you listen to what's being said, rather than spending all your time thinking about what you're going to say. The mind of a prudent person acquires knowledge. He desires it. He looks for it. He searches for knowledge. He wants knowledge. And the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. So you were correct, Micah. It's all about listening. It's all about the ear. The same way that moments ago we were talking about the mouth and the lips, and I said, that's speech. Mouth and lips are just euphemisms for how you talk. Same thing. Your ear, your ear doesn't jump off your face and go running around looking for knowledge. He's saying that your ear desires to hear knowledge. It seeks knowledge. And that's listening, active listening, paying attention when intelligent people are speaking about wise things that you need to know. The inverse of that is the fool who's only involved in himself. He only cares what he thinks, and so his ear isn't inclined to that because he's not listening. Verse 16 says, A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. Now, this is one of the two verses that I mentioned earlier where I said these may just be very practical, realistic verses where Solomon is just describing this is the way things are. He's not saying it's good. He's not saying it's bad. He's just saying this is the way things are. In earlier chapters, we've already seen Solomon talk against bribery. So he's not saying in a positive way, if you want to get in and see great men and powerful men, make sure you bring a gift. Don't don't bribe them. But he's also recognizing the reality That if you do bring a gift, that's more likely to bring you before wise people. They're going to make room for you because they want the gift. But this is also one of the verses that my my whole life in the church, I have heard this verse lifted from the context here and spiritualized to say that a man's spiritual gift will make room for him within the larger church world. I heard just this week, one of the uh, preacher pastors, I don't know what to call them. What do you call Paula White? I don't know what to call them. One of them that were with her, who was at the White House with President Trump, said that the reason they were all there at the White House was because, well, a man's gift makes room for him. And I immediately thought that bit of braggadocio right there kind of indicates everything that's wrong with how you've interpreted that verse. If you want to say that God gives certain people gifts, and having given them gifts, he places them within the church body, I would agree with that conceptually, but I wouldn't go to this verse to prove it. I'd go to the book of Ephesians to prove it. And God gives some apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers Okay, the Bible does say that God gifts particular people with particular gifts in order to place them in particular positions within the church. We just talked about that last night at men's meeting and the creation of deacons in the book of Acts. But I can't quite convince myself that when Solomon wrote, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men, that he was necessarily saying God gives gifts to people and that's why they end up in the White House. I think that's a misunderstanding of that verse. Now we're back to this courtroom setting that I've been mentioning. We're back to this judgment thing and the importance of listening because verse 17 says, the first to plead his case seems just. The first person to get up and say, this is my case. This is what I'm saying. This is what has happened. This is what has occurred He can sound very, very convincing. We see it all the time in modern politics. We see people get in front of the camera immediately. 
In fact, oftentimes we see politicians race for the camera because they want to be the first one to lay out their case or say how they see things. So the first person to make his case seems just, seems honest, seems appropriate until someone else comes along and examines him. In these nonstop news cycles that we're living with right now, where everybody feels like they have to be the first person to report on everything, it's really good to take everything with a grain of salt and just wait. The truth will come out. Just wait until the real information is disseminated. Solomon says the same thing. The first one to plead his cause, the first one in a court trial, in a judgment, when when the two women came before Solomon and said, decide between us whose baby is this, the first woman who spoke said, well, it's my baby, and she rolled over on her baby and killed it in the night, and this is my baby. Well, that sounded very right. That sounded very just. Then the other one spoke said, no, wait, that's actually my baby. She's the one that killed her baby. Oh, wait, now judgment has to be determined. And you can only determine that by actively listening. Get the point? Yes. So in other words, don't jump to conclusions just because somebody has a good-sounding story. Wait until all the facts come out, and that requires active listening instead of jumping to conclusions or becoming part of the echo chamber of misinformation. In verse 18, we are going to stop there. We didn't make it as far as I thought we'd make it tonight, but that's okay. The lot puts an end to contentions and decides between the mighty. We looked at that verse back when we were in chapter 16. Chapter 16.33 is where we read that the lot is cast into the lap but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. And we jumped forward to 1818 in order to see that the lot puts an end to contentions. This also, I believe, has to do with judgment, has to do with determining the right and the wrong of situations. At some point, people are going to be contentious with each other. They're going to argue with each other. And so leaving it in the hands of God by casting lots and recognizing that God is in charge of the way the lot falls, that way it's not even the judge who has determined it so that they can't say, well, you're just a man. How did you decide? He says the casting of those lots puts an end to those kind of contentions And it determines, it decides between strong cases, between mighty men. Oh, and I can't really stop there because verse 19 is attached to it because it says a brother offended. And we have read this verse a few weeks ago. A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. We're talking about strong walls and strong towers and strong cities. Conquering a strong city a well-built, high-wall, big-tower city, that is a difficult thing to do, but it's even more difficult to win back a brother who's been offended. Once that difficulty between them has occurred, once you've offended your brother, it's really hard to win him back. And contentions, arguments between them, are like the bars of a castle. And Solomon, with his castle, would know what that was, to put bars on windows to keep people out. And he says these kind of arguments, these kind of contentions between strong men are like bars on a castle. You can't break through it. You can't get to the other person. You can't apologize enough. You can't ever resume relationships the way they were before because you've offended that brother, and that's going to permanently damage things. So I think that has to do with verse 18, where there is contention, And there's contentions between strong men and mighty men. There's contentions between brothers and arguing between brothers. The only way to bring an end to that kind of judgment, Solomon says here, is to let God decide and cast lots for it. And that the casting of those lots puts an end to those contentions. That's the only just way that men are going to be brethren again and uh, not build strong cities against each other. We will stop there, and that's where we will pick up next week. We'll finish chapter 18 and get into chapter 19, and we'll just make our own chapter markings, doggone it. We don't care. Any questions about that?
Are you happy to be back in Proverbs? Yes. Can you see what I was saying at the beginning of the evening when I said, this is all just so practical? I mean, I'm sure, I assume it, because it happened to me, but I assume there was at least one of these Proverbs tonight that kind of hit you and made you go, wow, i, I got to think about that. I've been difficult with people. I've I got to change my ways. I've got to think through these things. I have to trust in God more. I have to stop trusting in my health or my money. These, these are just really good, effective admonitions and uh, corrections to how we live. They're easy to apply. And, man, they have to be applied. That's what wisdom is. It's one thing to just hear it and go, yeah, that makes sense. It's another thing to actually apply it to your life. And I think that's why, as we were talking on Sunday morning about how we got our Old Testament, at least, this is the very word of God. And it's included in the very word of God because the wisdom Solomon had came from God. And therefore, this isn't just Solomon being a smart guy, which he was. This is Solomon conveying the wisdom of God so that we can live a life that is appropriate to the confessions we have. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.